welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. In the past year, and as a re reaction to the pandemic, many Division I schools tried to drop sports. Most tried to drop men's sports. Some, like William and Mary and Stanford, dropped a large number of Olympic sports, including men's and women's teams. Most immediately, the players took to the internet, finding law firms to help them in their quest to reinstate their teams. In the past, this has been an uphill battle. Athletic departments could wait out the students and alumni, hoping their initial passion and anger would subside. But this year, something different happened. More often than not, athletes and alumni have been remarkably agile in articulating their perspectives, particularly as they relate to the school's prior and or current Title IX compliance and finding very capable allies waiting to help. One of those allies is Arthur Bryant, Twice named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, Bryant has been a civil rights icon for decades. The Philadelphia native made his initial mark by winning access for girls to attend the previously all-male elite public high school, Central High School, and he hasn't looked back. He successfully sued Temple University in the 1980s to improve the standing of women's athletics and has now successfully represented more women athletes and potential athletes in Title IX litigation against schools and universities than any lawyer in the country. I jokingly asked him if he ever got tired of winning. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're approaching the 50th anniversary of Title IX. This law still confounds, frustrates, disorients athletic departments and universities. What is it, in your opinion, that they are missing about this law? Well, if the law confounds them, I'm really quite surprised. Um, if it frustrates or disorients them, I'm not particularly surprised at all because it requires them to change how they have run athletic departments over the years. Now, of course, the law has been in existence for 49 years. So if they're still frustrated and confounded, they're not doing something right. That means they haven't been complying with the law for almost 50 years now. The law is actually very simple and straightforward. It's very few words. Title IX basically says that no educational institution receiving federal funds can discriminate on the basis of sex, period. That's it. And almost every educational institution in the country is receiving federal funds, often because their students receive federal financial aid, which goes to the schools. So basically, no school in the country can discriminate on the basis of sex. That's not complicated. That shouldn't confound anybody. If it frustrates them, there's something wrong with their view of the world. If it disorients them, there's something wrong with their view of the world because it's really about right and wrong. It's really that women and men, girls and boys deserve to, and as a matter of law must be treated equally. Um, and so that's how the law works. It's really very simple and straightforward. Um, in the area of athletics, in colleges, what the federal government has said is that means that you can have separate programs for men and women in athletics. Of course you can and do, but in those programs, the men in the men's program and the women in the women's program need to have equal opportunities to participate equal athletic financial aid, and equal treatment and benefits. That's it. Now you can make it really complicated 
but you don't have to. It's just a matter of how do you want to achieve that goal? It totally makes sense from my perspective, but I coached women's sports. You know, I was an athlete myself, so, so I do understand this. And, and one of the things I try to say to folks is that we wouldn't allow this kind of distinguishment to happen in the classroom. So why would we allow it to happen in the athletic facilities on our own campuses? That they don't suddenly change at three o'clock when they go, go out to practice. But it's, I think a lot of leaders think that they think that they want a prescriptive answer with how to comply with Title IX. Is, in your experience, was the intent of the law to allow for more institutional flexibility and compliance? And could that be one of the challenges? Well, I think the intent of the law, of the law was to get rid of discrimination, period, end of analysis. How to best provide equality was a little complicated in athletic programs because there are differences between athletic programs. Some programs have football, some don't. Some have different sports in the women's program, some don't. Um, some spend a lot of money on sports, some don't. And so exactly what the school should do prescriptively is hard to say for all the schools when there are massive differences between the schools. Look, I went to Swarthmore College outside Philadelphia. I just finished threatening Clemson University uh, with a Title IX case. Clearly what Clemson and Swarthmore have to do for their athletes to provide equality are not the same thing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Right. But in terms of a prescriptive answer, that's really pretty simple. If they really want it, um, you know, call me. Um, I've been doing this litigation. I've done more of these cases than anybody in the country. I've yet to have any school reach out to me and say, "We want to get into compliance with Title IX. We're not sure how to do it. Would you help us figure it out?" Of You're course, I would help figure it no out. No one has reached, not one school has reached out to you in all this time. Never. The That's only, right. what has happened is the women and an occasion, the men who are being discriminated against have reached out to me. And then I've had to threaten the school. Um, and on occasion, for example, against Brown University, we ended up with a very prescriptive settlement agreement after we proved them liable in court. Um, then yes, we told them exactly what they had to do. But that was only after they fought for years and tried to justify the discrimination or say they weren't discriminating. Um, but it was pretty easy when you come up with, what do you have to do to get in compliance to come up with a plan? The problem is most schools in this country don't even have a plan. They're not even trying. Um, so from my perspective, my perspective, the intent of the law was to make the principle clear no discrimination, and the basic analytical framework clear, equal opportunities to play, equal athletic financial aid, equal treatment and benefits, and then make sure the schools could achieve those goals with whatever was the most sensible right way to do it at their schools. That's not hard if you really want to do it. The problem is a whole lot of schools haven't devoted the energy to trying to do it. I find it interesting that you're using uh, or talking to Clemson or communicating with Clemson. I wrote an article with a colleague of mine uh, a few years ago about their brand new state-of-the-art football. Uh, I will call it a man cave, but it's a practice facility that has every bell and whistle, including a barber shop and everything else inside of it. And I thought to myself, well, okay, where are they going to provide these kinds of facilities for an equal number of women? It doesn't appear they even considered it. I don't understand this, Arthur. I really don't. Well, that's exactly what's going on around the country. I forget the name of the school, but I'm going to say about 10 years ago, there was a school 
that built a new football stadium in the South that didn't have any women's bathrooms. Oh my gosh. And they only realized that after the thing was built that, oh my God, we hadn't even thought of women enough to have bathrooms for them. I mean, you just wonder, what are we talking, you know, who are these people? Right. But it goes down to, again, what is the dedication of the school to making sure that it complies with the law? And to me, what's most remarkable about that is this is a federal law. <laughs> it's not like schools are allowed to say, you know what, we decide we're not going to pay taxes this year. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, yeah. it just uh, because we want to do better with our football team. I mean, it's you too can't hard. do it's too that. Hard. <laughs> Um, and, the, and there are basic principles that the law has established under Title IX. For example, um, it's very clear, the law is very clear that because it's an anti-discrimination law, whether the school or a team is making money or losing money, doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, you can't discriminate against people to make money. You can't discriminate against people to avoid losing money. Um, and the size of your program doesn't matter. So in the Brown University case at first, Brown tried to come in and say, well, we should be able to do more on football because football has a chance to make money. Now, of course, query whether Brown University's football team you know, has a significant chance of making money, but the judge basically said, look, you're not getting it. This is a law about equality. He said, you don't have to offer any athletic program. And if you offer no athletic program, you're complying with Title IX because you're giving men and women exactly the same thing, nothing. <laughs> but if you have a program of any size, small or large, whether it's making money or losing money, what Title IX requires is that you give women and men in the program equality, um, equal opportunities. There's no financial aid around, but you know, equal opportunities and equal treatment and benefits because that's what the law requires. And so you know, that's what so confounds me in this latest football arms race of building these state-of-the-art practice facilities. I get it. It's recruiting. It's, you know, in this day and age, there's more media dollars than ever and ever, but it's like their thinking stops at that point. And then they turn to the, most of them are all non-revenue sports, but most of them will say, okay, well, if you could find us a donor, then we'll build your facility. But in the meantime, we're on hold. They don't seem to feel any sense of obligation to the other gender. Well, it's been, it's been fascinating to me. So I recently spoke at the National Convention of the Swimming and Diving Coaches, uh, Collegiate Swimming and Diving Coaches. And then we have a breakout session afterwards where we got to talk in more detail. And in this meeting, I talked with coaches and I said, so listen, at your schools, you know, there are the men as a whole are being treated way better than the women as a whole. Not necessarily between the men's and women's swimming and diving teams, but right. considering all of the teams, including football and basketball and everything. And they're clearly in violation of Title IX if they are treating the men as a whole way better than the women as a whole. Why, if the law has been in existence almost 50 years, why is this going on? I mean, I know there's a limit what you can do as coaches, but why is this going on? And the response I got was uniform. It said, because there is no accountability or priority for it at the top. That the athletic directors come in, what is emphasized for some of them is raising money, 
for all of them is winning games. Um, but Title IX isn't even on the screen. And that the board isn't making it a priority. The president isn't making it a priority. And if the athletic director doesn't even know it's important and isn't held accountable, unless they get the school in trouble in the law, then it's not gonna happen. And that's sort of the most disturbing piece of it. I have read that the metrics in which you can get another job and move up the pecking order is by what you just said, fundraising, building facilities and winning programs. And even presidents, that's how they're measured if they wanna move on to another place. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, not purposefully, but it turns out we're creating a counter metric, which is in three or four of the last schools where we've come in uh, with and shown the schools in blatant violation of Title IX, so much so the school doesn't even want to be sued. They'll just agree to change what they've done and get back into compliance or get into compliance. Within a month, the athletic director has been gone because mm. the athletic director is the one who created the problem according to the school. Right, right, right. right. Okay. So let's look at a larger, more systemic issue of the number of women attending college in the last 15 years has consistently eclipsed the percentage of male students on most campuses. How has this demographic trend complicated the landscape? Well, in a bunch of ways. First of all, I mentioned earlier there are sort of, when you look at Title IX under the law, there are three areas that the federal regulations focus on. The first is opportunities to participate. Um, and this there, it is not women have to get 50% of the chances to play sports and men have to get 50% of the chances to play sports. Um, it can be you're offering all of the sports that women have interest and ability to play. Um, and then it doesn't matter what the percentages are. Right. Or, or it could be every time there is interest and ability in a new team for women to play, um, you're adding it. And then again, it doesn't matter what the percentages are. But most schools aren't trying to comply under either of those two approaches. And so instead, it comes down to the what's called part one of a three-part test. But it's basically, um, it is that your percentages of, of participation in your athletic program should essentially match your undergraduate enrollment rates. So if your undergraduate enrollment rate started at 50% women, and is now at 60% women, then that means that your athletic participation rates in your intercollegiate athletic program ought to be at 60%. And so if you're not paying attention to this, and, the, and women are going from 50 to 60% of your undergraduate student body, then you're gonna be in trouble. Um, unless you are adding women's teams, or while I hope it wouldn't be true, you could do it by cutting men's teams or decreasing the size of teams. But if you're not paying attention to it, you got a problem. Um, the, the, um, that's the first area. The second area of is athletic financial aid. And there the law is again, strictly a numbers crunch. And what it says is that your athletic financial aid should be essentially equal to the participation rates in your athletic program that again, remember, are supposed to be matching your undergraduate enrollment rates. So all of a sudden, if, if your undergraduate enrollment rate went from 50% female to 60% female, then not only should the participation rates have gone there, but so should the athletic financial aid rates gone there. 
And then the third area is, at, is benefits and treatment. Um, there, it's not a straight number crunch because the law recognizes, for example, if uh, the school gets the football team for men, the best uniforms you know, possible, and it gets an equivalent number of women in the women's program in their various sports, the best uniforms possible, it is still likely true that the football uniforms are gonna cost more. So you can't just look at it as a straight dollar crunch, um, but the principle is still, if you're doing that for the football team, then you have to do it for a similar number of women or percentage of women in the uh, women's program. So again, it's the increase of percentages of women undergraduate enrollment ends up costing the school more money, requiring them to at least be paying attention and you know, moving things um, in the right direction. So the women who are in the program continue to get, or I should really say, start to get treated as well as the men in the program. And it really, again, points back to the facility issue, because if you're constantly building and updating you know, locker rooms and weight rooms and, and uh, therapy pools and things like that, but only one team, usually a male team has access to that, then you've got a problem that falls in those benefits category that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's- I will, I will say, I mean, to me, even before I knew anything about Title IX, you know, I had three sisters. <laughs> we played sports growing up. My mom and dad, and we all played sports together. And, you know, the notion that I should somehow get better treatment because I'm the boy playing instead of the girl playing, this never crossed my mind. And, um, but one of the things that is so striking in this whole area is how many men don't get it until they have a daughter. And then all of a sudden their eyes open up. Wait a minute, why shouldn't my daughter get what your son's getting? Exactly. But that it, that it takes that is just mind boggling. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into something that you and I know is prong three, which I've now heard more than once in the last maybe eight, 10 months that schools are starting to look at because they feel like they have maxed out they have more women than men on campus, and they feel like they have maxed out on the number of opportunities of sports that they could offer because they've surveyed their current population or whatever. They've looked around at the high schools. And so I'm starting to hear people say that we can survive by constantly surveying and trying to identify if there's any sports that are out there. Walk us through how prong three could be successfully used in a Title IX case. That's fine. Should I assume that the listeners know what prong three is? Let's go ahead and explain it. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So basically, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, to measure equal opportunities to play sports, uh, the United States Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights created a three-part test. Um, all you have to do is comply with one of these three parts and you're in compliance. The first part is that you're undergraduate enrollment rates essentially match your athletic participation rates. That's part one or prong one. Prong two is whether or not those rates match, doesn't matter. It's whether you have a continuing practice of expanding the program in response to the developing interests and abilities of the underrepresented gender. 
which at most schools is women, at Vassar it could be men. Right. Um, and, and the third prong or part of the test is you're already currently offering all of the sports for which the underrepresented gender, usually women, have interest and ability and competition available. So in theory, a school could do that. And what it's doing for the men doesn't matter in terms of participation. Um, and I have heard, but I do not know, that there are, and particularly a lot of division three schools that at least say they're doing this. I do know that um, when we threatened to sue William and Mary after it eliminated several women's and men's teams, and it quickly put the women's teams back, and then within a month or so put the men's teams back too, and part of what they did as the, part of the settlement was they would develop a gen, do a full gender equity review and develop a plan to get fully in compliance with Title IX right. throughout their athletic program. What they adopted was a plan that they were gonna comply with part three of the test. Now, whether they're gonna get there and how they're gonna get there, I don't know yet because they, they just adopted the plan last week. Um, but I'm, I'm sorry, last month, but um, in theory, it's possible. Uh, but what it means is you actually have to pay attention to the interests and abilities and competition available to the women on the school and be looking to add teams. And that has not been historically how most schools have acted. So how do I go about assessing whether I'm fully accommodating? Is it just for, for me to survey the, the students that are on my campus at that moment in time? And do they do it every year? Or do I have to really look at a larger audience of prospective students and what high schools are offering and other kinds of things? I think, I don't know all of the details of that, um, but I can say generally my understanding is you have to look, it's not just what are the students on campus because you're the one making the decision who gets on campus. Right. And, and um, if you're in a community or in a league that you have competitors or and high school players in the, in the community, et cetera, you see what other school sports are playing. What other sports is there interest and available, interest and ability and competition available for? And then are you offering those? Uh, and, you know, understandably, I don't, I don't know that this is true, but for example, if the University of, high, of Hawaii has a surfing team, that doesn't mean that the University of North Carolina has to <laughs> right. 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 On the other hand, you know, if there is an area where lacrosse is a hotbed or squash is a hotbed sport or something like that, um, then why aren't you offering it is, is a reasonable question. Mm -hmm. And whether you're fully and effectively accommodating the interests and abilities of women in the area, um, including students and potential students, is, is an open question. So the, the most valuable thing to do if you're absolutely going to hang your hat on that is to provide surveys that you've done regularly to, to, to demonstrate that you're actively looking at the landscape. Well, not just, yes, but not just surveys. Well, I would say more than surveys. I would say okay. surveys of the students on campus. Um, I mean, maybe, again, I'm no expert on this because we've never had to focus down on part three because yep. um, we had no school yet claim that it was in compliance with it when we went after. Um, but it would be evaluating, looking outward to the community as well, okay. seeing what's, what's in the leagues that you compete in, in the geographic area in which you compete, uh, what, are played, uh, what are played by women in the area, for example. 
Now for some schools that have national competitive uh, reach, you know, it'd be very hard, for example, you know, for Notre Dame or for Stanford or, you know, um, Alabama uh, to be saying, oh, we're just gonna look in our regional area right. Right. <laughs> when they're competing nationally. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, for some division three schools that, you know, are, are limited to just some small geographic area, it might be entirely reasonable for them to say, well, you know, we've looked in the area which we compete in and we're offering all the sports that everybody else is offering for. And there's been no club sport on our campus where women really want to play this sport and trying to and showing they have the ability and interest um, and are applying and can't get there. Um, but it would, again, it would have, if they do it right, it is a huge mind shift uh, from how they're looking, how they've been looking at it historically. How it's been looked at historically was we're doing what we're doing. And unless somebody puts a lot of pressure on us, that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, and, and that is a very different mindset then. Uh, and, you know, I will say that was the mindset and then Title IX passed and there was a period of time where they all expanded their programs uh, or almost all expanded their programs to get. And if you look back, you can say, well, wow, if you look where women were, you know, they were at, let's say 10% of the chances to play sports. And now they're getting nationally, let's say 42% of the chances to play sports. And that's wonderful. And then you say, but wait a minute. First of all, 42% is not equality. Right. And then second, particularly if women's undergraduate enrollment rates, enrollment rates are 56%, then it's even further from target. And I'm not saying those are the accurate numbers, but it's something like that. Yeah. And, and to have the mindset of, wow, our undergraduate enrollment rate is now for women 56%. Are we doing everything we could to give them the chances to play sports? Is just an entire you know, shift in mindset that's critical, would be wonderful, but hasn't been happening in most schools. So you've had a lot of cases, and I asked you to think about a couple of cases before the podcast today. So walk us through a couple of the cases that you thought the audience would be most interested in. Uh, I'd be happy to. So we, we've done now 10 basically in the last year. Wow. All with schools eliminating women's or men's teams that were already there and actively thriving. And in eight of those schools, after we threatened to sue them and showed them how they were violating the law by eliminating the team or teams, the school didn't, didn't want to go to court. They knew they were going to lose. And so they put the teams back. They agreed to do a full gender equity review and get completely in compliance with Title IX within a couple of years. Um, but let me give you two different examples that sort of give you a light on what's been happening. And I should say some of these schools know nothing, seemingly know nothing about Title IX. It's just stunning to me. Amazing. So, so there was a school um, in the South, uh, UNC Winthrop, I think it was, um, that they had 60% of their undergraduate student body was women, but they gave women only 40% of the chances to play sports. 
And then when they had decide, they decided for financial reasons they wanted to get rid of a team, what did they choose to get rid of? A woman's team. <laughs> and, you're just, and it became clear they didn't know anything about it. Literally, I think they knew nothing about it. But as the first example is Dart. Dartmouth College knew all about it. Um, Dartmouth announced um, on June 9th, 2020, that it was eliminating um, the women's golf and swimming and diving teams, along with the men's golf, lightweight rowing and swimming and diving teams, effective immediately, period, they were done. Um, and it announced to all the supporters of the team and the members of teams, decisions made, don't even try to change our mind, it's over. Um, and when they did that, it was clear they knew all about Title IX because they posted on their website when they made the announcement. This is a quote. As a result of their team's elimination, quote, the percentage of women among varsity athletes will be virtually identical to the percentage of women in the undergraduate student body, ensuring compliance with Title IX, end quote. Okay. Right, so they clearly thought it through. Yes. They said they were going to be in compliance. There was only one thing wrong. That just wasn't true. It wasn't close to true. They were, the, the undergraduate, if you, after the teams were cut, um, the, the difference would be smaller. But after the teams were cut, women were 49% of the undergraduate student body, and they were going to get 46.23% of the chances to play sports. It was a difference of 2.83%. The percentage isn't important, it's the size of that difference was. And the size of that difference was 47 players, which was more than the golf and swimming and diving teams all combined. Oh my goodness. So everybody they were getting rid of from the women's side, they needed to keep to be in compliance with Title IX. But they put this on the website, right? They put that, the percentages are going to be, quote, virtually identical. And so the, the women and men supporting all these teams were furious. They organized. They wrote to the board. They protested. They were utterly ignored from July 9th, 2020 until mid-December of 2020 um, when, when the women and men contacted me and said, we're wondering, is there a Title IX problem here? And I took a look at the public numbers and I said, there's absolutely a Title IX number. Why have you waited five months to come talk to me? And they said, well, because they said on their website that the numbers were virtually identical and they were in compliance with Title IX, we believe them. Wow. And I said, well, they're wrong. So I wrote to the president on December 18th, uh, asking to meet with them and their council. I met with their council. And six weeks later, they reinstated all the women's teams and all the men's teams uh, because they just were wrong about the numbers. And within a month, the athletic director was gone. Wow. Um, and so that's the first example. The second one is quite different, which is Dartmouth. I'm sorry, that was Dartmouth, which is Clemson, which is Clemson. Okay. Clemson. Now, I should say Clemson is the first case in which anybody has ever successfully represented men under Title IX. 
And I've been approached by men at the, in the past, but the typical problem when you're approached by men whose teams are being eliminated is if you go to the school and say, make it equal, the school could say, fine, we'll make it equal. We'll cut some more women's teams. Right, right, right. No, we've seen that consistently, yes. And, and I don't really want to be a part of that. <laughs> so um, again, Clemson, um, in November of 2020, announced that it was eliminating its men's track, field, and cross-country teams, right. which were primarily Black teams. And everybody got organized. They were in Fuhrer. They, they solved this really wonderful group, Save Clemson cross, uh, track, cross, track, field, and cross-country. Um, and the school, again, just ignored them told them to go blow, you know, forget it, nothing's gonna happen. They looked at a potential race discrimination claim, filed a claim with the federal government, uh, but proving race discrimination is much harder because uh, the Supreme Court has held, you have to prove an intent exists to actually want to discriminate against people on the basis of their race, or the school is gonna be able to say, well, that was not our intent. Uh, but you don't need to prove that intent when you're looking at gender equity issues when you have separate programs for men and women, then it has to, it's separate but equal. Separate but equal is out of the picture for race issues now, right? In America, you can't do that. But here, this is one of the few areas for women and men where you can have separate, but they have to be equal. So they approached me and, and it was astonishing. Clemson, like most major schools, when we looked at the public information, was discriminating against women in terms of denying them equal athletic financial aid mm -hmm. and against women in terms of denying them equal treatment of benefits and had been, until they made this announcement, been providing actually equal opportunities to play to men and women. But when they announced they were cutting the men's track field and cross country teams, 89 positions for men, all of a sudden they were gonna be discriminating against men in terms of opportunities to play sports. Oh my goodness. So I met with the men's team and also arranged a bunch of other meetings um, and the way we worked it out. So they eliminated them in November. Um, and then basically four months later, um, the men on the team contacted me and I talked to my co-counsel and um, associate counsel. So on March 12th, Friday I, of 2021, I wrote the president of Clemson a letter that says, hi, you know, I'm Arthur Bryant. I represent the men on the track field and cross country teams. Um, and by eliminating these teams, you are violating Title IX and depriving men of equal opportunities to play sports. And unless you put them back and adopt a plan to get fully in compliance with Title IX on opportunities to play, we're gonna file a class action lawsuit against you on behalf of all the male athletes and potential athletes at the school. The following Monday, March 15th, my co-counsel in my other cases, Lori Bullock, sent the president of Clemson a letter saying, hi, I represent the women uh, <laughs> at Clemson University, in particular women on the track and field and cross country and rowing team. Um, and there might've been one other, I'm forgetting for a second. Um, she said, we know about the men's threatened lawsuit um, and we are fully supportive of that because we want you to be in compliance with Title IX. 
but we women also want you to stop depriving us of equal athletic financial aid and equal treatment, which you're doing. And unless you satisfy both the men and the women, we're going to file a class action against you on behalf of all the women athletes and potential athletes at the school for violating Title IX and discriminating against us on the basis of our sex. So Clemson became the first school in the country to be simultaneously threatened by both its men and its women for discriminating against them on the basis of sex in violation of Title IX in very different aspects of its athletic program. And Clemson quickly settled and agreed both to not only put the men's track field and cross country teams back, but to add two new teams for women uh, and to start and to, again, adopt a gender equity plan to get fully in compliance with uh, Title IX and treat the men and women equally. But what you said earlier about the, what's being provided to football players, not just at Clemson, at all of these big schools, because they view it as a recruiting tool. Absolutely. And you can go up on their websites and it's just jaw dropping. We learned in the Clemson football facility, the whole school has a swimming pool for everybody else. Football players have a swimming pool just for themselves. The whole school has a cafeteria. Football players have a, foot, a cafeteria just for themselves with um, meals made on request throughout the day. Yes, with chefs, yes. With chefs, <laughs> they have their own barber shop. Yes. When they travel, they have two custom-made suits, business suits that they wear. Um, they have their own putt-putt course. They have three bowling alleys. And they had all matching electric scooters for something like 85 to 90 players on the football team. <laughs> and, and there was just more and more and more. And then when we discovered how much better the football team was being treated than any other women or men for that matter on yeah. the, in the school, all of a sudden Clemson was very eager to say, yes, we, we, we need to do something here and let's resolve this and bring it into uh, compliance with Title IX. So do they give those, those folks that were added, they give everybody, everybody else scooters as well? Do, are there any? Well, no, again, I can say uh, <laughs> within six weeks, five or six weeks of when we wrote this letter, the school put all the teams back, agreed to add, add the two women's teams and agreed to adopt a plan that it will be providing equal opportunities. I'm sorry, not just equal opportunities, but equal athletic financial aid and treatment and benefits within a year or two. They have, we knew, they couldn't like build a new swimming pool overnight. <laughs> so how they're going to work it out, we have yet to see, but they've at least agreed to do it in a binding legal agreement. Well, I want an orange and purple scooter now. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So to kind of start to wrap this up, you have seen a ton of change in the college sports landscape in the, in the decades that you've been involved with college sports. What trends have, that you've seen over time give you hope? For the future? Um, in terms of hope, I would say first, next year is the 50th anniversary for Title IX. And you can look at that and say how bad things are compared to where they should be. But if you're looking at how do we get things where they need to be, um, I view that as creating a great opportunity um, for bringing around compliance. The federal government should be paying attention to it. They might finally bring an enforcement action in federal court about it. There should be massive publicity around it. 
and more massive attention paid to these schools saying, you know, why aren't you in compliance yet? It's been 50 years. Um, there may be generated much more leadership around it uh, with schools, I'm sorry, board of directors with the president saying to the athletic directors, hey, where are we on this? Why aren't we in compliance yet, et cetera. Um, so first, just the 50th anniversary and what I expect to be all around that, I think will uh, make a difference and gives me hope. Another piece of it is I think it will inform way more women of what their rights are. And, um, you know, they don't tend to go to school and say, look how much better the football team is treated than all the rest of us, because they don't, they're not football players, they just think, they don't think about it that way. But as they learn that women as a whole are entitled to be treated just as well as men as a whole, including the football players, um, and that it's been 50 years, there's been a much, you know, as more women are on campus and as more women are educated and involved in athletics, et cetera, um, their both willingness, their knowledge and their willingness to exercise power and even their ability to exercise power from the administrative piece of the government, uh, of the schools is expanding. And I, I really do believe um, that as more and more women understand what the law provides um, and what they're entitled to, there will be more enforcement and more compliance. And I think the third thing is, I think more and more people are finally getting it. I mean, when you saw the reaction to what was put online about the NCAA Final Four yeah. weight rooms provided for the women's team compared to the men's team, nobody thought that was okay. Nobody thought it was excusable. Um, the NCAA didn't, NCAA didn't pull out its normal excuse of we're not covered by Title IX, yeah. they've been saying for years. Um, I don't think it's true. Um, and I'm waiting for the case where we can bring and show it's not true. But um, I do think it showed the public knows this is just wrong. And that women and men athletes, like all other women and men, should be treated equally and well. So those are three reasons I have hope for what's going on in the future. Well, Arthur, this is the reason we do these podcasts is for hopeful education of senior campus leaders, uh, presidents, trustees, folks who want to learn more about the enterprise, but because of what the way they're situated, they just don't have opportunities. So I'm grateful for your expertise and your good humor and your dogged, dogged determination in doing what is right for the last 30 or 40 years. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It's been an absolute pleasure.